We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, so you can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Last Sunday night, last Sunday night, I emphasized in verses 5 through 7, if you were here, uh, the conversion story of the Thessalonians. And in verses 5 through 7, I believe Paul focuses on the nature of the gospel presentation that was communicated to them in the three weeks that he was there when he planted the church. And I think you could summarize this very easily in verse 5 when Paul says, for the word came, or, or for the gospel came uh, to you not only in word, but also in power, the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And so as Paul reflects upon the three weeks in planting this little church in the town of Thessalonica, this is his memory. The gospel moved powerfully. It was not just words, spoken things, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit and God produced full conviction. He, he produced confidence in me as I proclaim this word and uh, he rejoices in the powerful gospel that God used there. Today we're going to look at verses 8 through 10, a second section where Paul is recalling those original events in Thessalonica. And here he'll reflect upon the powerful testimony that God worked in the Thessalonian believers' lives. Look in your Bible at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray to the Lord. Fathers, we come to you studying your word. We rejoice together. We worship together in community. And now uh, we hear the word proclaimed in community. I pray that you would reveal the truth of Scripture. I pray that our brief reflection and meditation on these verses would be beneficial. We pray that the gospel would not only come in word today, but in power through the Holy Spirit and with deep assurance and conviction. Lord, we know that for you to use the proclamation of your word, the spirit must be active, must be powerful. And so we pray that in our midst as well. Pray that you would do this to honor the glory of your own name. You are eternally worthy of all glory, praise, honor, and blessing. So too is the Son and I pray that we would exalt him together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This year's a special year for our church. We've been uh, around for 40 years or so. The Thessalonian church uh, that we read about today had only experienced uh, less than one year when Paul writes this letter. Yet I think that uh, although they're a young church at this time and we're an older seasoned church, there's much for us to learn as we look at their testimony uh, when they were converted. You know, sometimes 
older people are greatly impacted by the nature or the zeal of younger people, or perhaps even their knowledge. Uh, illustration of this just in, in normal day life. Have you ever seen an older person, 70 or older? Now, if you're 70 or older and you don't think you're old, uh, please forgive me. Okay. Have you ever seen an older person try to deal with technology? Okay, then comes a little guy. I'm just amazed with my son Levi and how much he knows regarding technology. He's already almost like catching me or passing me. And it's fun for me. I have, I have memories of sometimes seeing an elderly person who wants to learn technology. Like, how do I turn this thing on? How do I do this? And to see a little child teach them. The church at Thessalonica can teach us today. Paul reflects especially on three aspects of their testimony that was powerful. And as we look at it, I think it'd be very wise for us as a church to evaluate our own testimony as an assembly and to consider how we might grow. And so first, as Paul describes their powerful testimony, he describes it this way in verse 8. First, a church with a powerful testimony, number one, shares the gospel. Shares the gospel. Look at verse 8 again. For not only has the word the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now, as we look at this and we try to learn this lesson, I think it's important for us to see both the range and the impact of the testimony of this new group of believers. The range of the testimony of the Thessalonians uh, can be seen from the very beginning of the verse. Uh, the first word there is for. It could be translated because. That word indicates the grounds for saying that the church was an example for other people to follow. I mean, you just said that right before this. Paul's saying this church is a good example to follow since or because God's word was sounding out from them. Here, men and women, we have inspired apostolic opinion about this church's testimony. As we look at this and we, we start analyzing it and studying, I think it'd be good for us to consider if, if God's man were alive today, if the Apostle Paul were alive today and he was searching through Virginia Beach for a model church, regardless of denomination or size or history, if he was looking for a model church in which God's word was sounding forth and impacting its surrounding region, would he choose Colonial Baptist Church? Well, to answer that question correctly, let's look closer at the range of the testimony of Thessalonians in verse 8. He says, first, God's word sounded out from them into Macedonia and Achaia. The words sounded out, very powerful words. These words are used, it, it went, it, meaning that God's word went out like a sound emanating in all directions from a single source. It's like uh, a mighty trumpet blast, the blast is sounded, and then it just echoes through the region. It's like the sounding of thunder, 
right? The lightning bolt hits, the thunder sound is produced, and then echoes. The word sounding out could be used of the reverberations from a large stone or an object being dropped into the water and the ripples just keep going out. So thus, without going any further in the text, we learn that God's word blasted out from them into all Macedonia and Achaia. And I have made reference to this before, but just to be clear, Macedonia is where Thessalonica is. Okay, Thessalonica is the capital city in this province surrounding northern Greece called Macedonia. And Achaia, that's the southern province where Greece is today. That's where Corinth is as a leading city. And this is also where the Apostle Paul is as he's writing this letter. So he says, God's word has blasted out in, into all the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. So we put... Achaia and Macedonia together, I did a quick study and saw that uh, Paul is saying that their testimony blasted out, or God's word blasted out to an area that was over 60,000 square miles. See, I've got nothing to you know, figure that out. What, what's 60,000 square miles? Well, well the, the state of Virginia is 42,000. 775 square miles. The state of North Carolina is 53,879 square miles. So the Apostle Paul is saying, God's word has blasted out from you into a region larger than either one of those two states, the states in which many of us live. But the text does not stop with Macedonia and Achaia. You continue to read in the text, he says, uh, not only has the word of the Lord gone out into those areas, but it says that the faith of the Thessalonian believers has spread out, Paul says, in every place. In every place. I think every place Paul had been, these places were abuzz with something. They were talking about something think you could go into the marketplace or into the Colosseum without hearing. Did you hear about so-and-so? He became a Christian. Christian. God changed his life. The range of their testimony was endless. Now, since Paul had planted this church uh, in the same year, he had been to a few cities. He had been to Berea and Athens, and now he's sitting in Corinth. And it becomes obvious that somehow in these cities, people heard and reported to Paul about the zeal of the Thessalonian believers and this congregation. Couldn't help but this week think about how that might be possible. I mean, how when you're sitting in an ancient city of Berea or Athens or Corinth, would you hear a report about this little town of Thessalonica and what God did there? I think one of the ways this could be possible is people were traveling through on the Ignatian Road they come through Thessalonica, they interact with some of these zealous followers of Jesus Christ, and they keep going to where Paul is in Berea or Athens and Corinth, and they just bring it up. Perhaps there were some sailors who ported in the city. There's a port city. These sailors port in the city, they begin to interact with the population. They find it, this amazing group, small group of people who are zealous followers of Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering and persecution. 
One of the interesting things to me that I saw in my Bible this week was in Acts 18. In uh, Acts 18, uh, the author Luke is describing the fact that Aquila and Priscilla, two tent makers by trade, had left the city of Rome. They were actually deported because of a, a Roman ruler. And that they make it the whole way to Corinth, where Paul was when he writes this letter. Okay? And there's, there's really not much doubt that these two travelers would have had to pass through Thess- Thessalonica uh, along the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, to get to where Paul was. So you imagine Aquila and Priscilla, these followers of Jesus, interact with this zealous group of believers, and then they get to Corinth and they say, Paul, man, what happened in Thessalonica? Those people have a zeal for Christ. Just imagine the Apostle Paul smiling about those three weeks with the Thessalonians. Most assuredly, their testimony for Christ spread out by spontaneous mouth-to-mouth reports of their conversion. The transmission from person to person of their vibrant Christian living begins to spread out in every place. As I was thinking about all the ways that we might be able to make an impact with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got a whole host of things we could, we could do or strategize and try. Been working on a strategic plan and thinking about mission. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do. Print, audio, radio, video, television, internet. But I think sometimes we make it too complicated. What needs to happen is that God needs to change us. Dramatically change our lives. He needs to change some people and save them out of addiction or slavery to their lusts and their passion. Dramatically change them. And then people need to see it. They need to see grace. I can't help but think that if we live in humbled, submissive, and surrendered lives, lives changed and transformed that uh, people in this region will go forward saying, man, those believers at Colonial Baptist Church, they love Christ and they are changed. Use the illustration of a good restaurant. I like restaurants and going out, especially when Chris is gone. Uh, going out and trying new places. And so I'll hear reports from, from different people. You know, when I find an, a restaurant that I really, really like first time, I just can't help but tell everyone about it. Man, you need to go to such and such a restaurant. Man, the food is amazing. And the service is awesome. Okay, and I'm telling everyone in the world. I think if, if we genuinely are a grace church where people can come in and see grace, like the church at Antioch, they see grace, I think the report's just going to go all around the region. I think the state of Virginia wouldn't be able to contain it if we are a church that's dramatically changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ and are living lives in conformity to him. Wouldn't it be to God's glory if someone left our assembly or interacting with some within our assembly and say to others, did you hear so-and-so got saved? 
He became a Christian. And it changed his life. I mean, it's just completely different. Do you hear what happened in Virginia Beach? God did something. Men and women, how influential is our testimony of change in this area? Is God's word blasting out? Is our faith in him sounding out from this church into Virginia Beach and Chesapeake and Portsmouth and Norfolk and Greenbrier and Great Bridge and Moyoc? I mean, you, you fill it in. We must portray vibrant Christian living to others. And we see this in the range of the Thessalonians testimony and conversion. But I want you to also see at the end of verse 8, I call it the impact of their testimony. See that at the end of verse 8? Paul says, so that we need not say anything. I don't want to lose sight of this. I mean, the range is impressive. Impact is incredible. Paul says that he doesn't need to say anything to others about the transformation in the lives of the Thessalonians. Instead, they already know because they've seen it. Here, Paul's boast reaches, I think, its climax in his insistence that these missionaries, the missionaries, can add nothing. They can add nothing to the community's reputation. Paul, the preacher, doesn't even need to open up his mouth to speak because this little group of new believers is a church who is on fire with a powerful testimony. Okay, so if our seasoned, mature church will learn from the young church in Thessalonica, we will be a church who shares the gospel. Now, uh, secondly, we'll also be a church who embodies the gospel or who lives out in front of others the way the gospel changes our lives. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I think in verse 9, it starts here, and then into verse 10, Paul further elaborates on what he's been hearing about the Thessalonians. The word for at the beginning of verse 9 is just saying, this is a, I'm going to keep explaining, or I'm going to expound on what I'm hearing about you. This is how exactly God's word blasted out, how exactly their faith went out, And so uh, he starts there uh, by showing that the church at Thessalonica embodied or lived the gospel and the change that it communicated. Verse 9, I think, reveals two essential components to the reports that Paul was hearing. Uh, The first essential to the report is that the reports described a conversion experience. Okay, now... Before we see that clearly, we have to understand at the beginning of verse 9 who uh, the words they themselves point to. To me, when I understood who they themselves referred to, the whole text just kind of opened up. Okay? So the word they themselves means that not only had Timothy brought good tidings of the church's faithfulness, but so did others. Okay? So the words they themselves speaks of people from the regions surrounding Paul and the Thessalonians. Because as you're reading through his text, you're trying to make sense of it. They themselves talks about the inhabitants of Macedonia and Achaia and those people around Paul. Those people report about Paul 
and the apostles. Specifically, they report about how the apostles went about entering into the city of Thessalonica when the Thessalonians were saved. In other words, very specifically, what Paul is hearing from they themselves, people around, was the nature of those three weeks he spent with them and their salvation in the midst of persecution. Okay, and so their report included then, as you get to the middle part of verse 9, a few things. First, it included this conversion experience that happened to them. You can see that in the word turn. So they're, they're telling us how you turned to God from idols. These reports are about the dynamic conversion of the Thessalonian believers. I think uh, I love these verses. I love verse 9 because I think that what you have, in my, in my opinion, is one of the clearest demonstrations of what conversion is. You ever hear that word before? Conversion. What does it mean to be converted to follower of Christ? And so this, this passage tells us they turned. That's what it means to be converted. You turn from one Lord to another. In their situation, they're turning from idols to the living and true God. Powerful little verse. Paul, in this section, just these words, he's speaking of the, a radical change of allegiance. I mean, think about it. These people at one time, previous to this, they were in the habit of sacrificing to Zeus and Aphrodite and Hermes and a whole host of other gods. They would pour tea to them. They would offer sacrifices to them, hoping that it would help them. But one day, Paul the Apostle comes. And he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and these people leave all of that behind and they turn to serve the living and true God. That's what conversion is. They abandoned those things. One commentator said it this way. It meant a turning away from their mainstream Greco-Roman culture to begin an existence which called for a new cultural, social, and religious relationship. They turn from all of the things, all of their previous ideas and gods and values to a new Lord, God the Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, have you ever made that choice? You ever made that choice where you said, there, are whole, there, there was a, a way I used to run my life. It was according to my own values, my own ideas, my own pursuits and dreams. But I decided one day to give all of that over to God and to turn to serve the living and true God of heaven. That's what we would call conversion. And men and women, that only happens today as one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and repents of their sin. And so if you cannot say that you have abandoned your own values, 
thoughts. Not too long ago, I heard someone who claimed to be a believer in Jesus Christ who made this statement. They said, I won't get into the particular issue, but it was, had to do with God and love. And this person said, well, if God is a God that won't love that sort of person and send that person to heaven, then I just won't believe it. Again, I won't get into the particulars, but it really uh, burdened my heart because, you know, if you can demonstrate that in the Bible, then your view of God doesn't matter. What matters is what God says about himself. Okay, and so we need to turn to God and what the scriptures say about him, and that's conversion. Um, But then secondly, as he's describing these reports to them, their reports also described what I would just call continual surrender. Okay, so they turn from God, from idols to God to serve the living and true God. So I get the word serve here. And this, this word describes, I think, the present character of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Their conversion was expressing itself in their commitment to serve God in an ongoing fashion. In other words, our initial faith in Christ must lead to an an ongoing commitment to serve him. And so I ask you, does your life embody the gospel? Do you live in the same ways as the Thessalonians here? And so if we are going to have a powerful testimony and learn from them, we must be a church who shares the gospel a church who embodies the gospel and the change that it works in the lives of people. But there's one more ingredient to this, and I have you look in your Bible at verse 10 as we close. Verse 10. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The final characteristic of a church with a powerful testimony is that a church with that sort of testimony expects the sudden appearance of the Son of God. The nature of the the Christian life uh, of the Thessalonians, you know, I've I've said a lot up here today. Maybe you missed some of it. This is how you can get all of it in one sentence, okay? If you underline the words, turn, serve, and wait, wait you get the ingredients in the Thessalonians' conversion and their powerful testimony. They turned, they were converted, to serve and wait. This is what makes Christians different, especially those who are powerful in their testimony like the Thessalonians. I think it's especially the waiting part. We are waiting for the dawn of a glorious new day. The day when the sun comes from heaven to take us to be with him. And we know that this is possible, as the text says, because this is the same God who, or the same son whom God raised from the dead. Like, you can be sure that he can break through the clouds to get us because God has already overcome the grave. 
And this is Jesus, the one who delivers us from a great future wrath, the wrath to come. Now, we'll talk more about that in Thessalonian epistles. I think it includes both physical, eschatological wrath, but eternal wrath as well. This is Jesus who was raised from the dead, who delivers his followers from great wrath to come. So the Thessalonian believers were waiting, waiting for the sun. I think their horizon was often different than ours. When we think future, when we think of what's coming, we see houses and vehicles and earthly dreams. They see a coming sun. As one commentator I read this week said it, he said, they were far more fervent in their desire to see Christ than many Christians today. They expected Christ to come back and bring deliverance for them. And so they were waiting. They were serving while waiting. I get the picture, perhaps you've experienced something like this before, where you hear that some special guest is coming to visit your house, but you don't have a lot of time to prepare. You know if this has ever happened to you. Maybe some of your houses are immaculate with, with no issues whatsoever. But you get word. It's like, you know, they're going to come any moment. It's going to be like in the next five minutes. You're going to come to the Belford household, when that, especially when mama's gone. I mean, it would be... It would be pretty interesting. We clean the house, we assign jobs because this guest is coming. We vacuum, we put stuff away anywhere we can put it. <laughs> and we don't stop working, but the whole time we're working, guess what I'm doing? I'm looking out the window, looking through the blinds. You work. You don't sit in like a, a Zen-like meditation staring at the door. No, you work, and you work with more fervency than perhaps before. As I get the picture of these infinitives here that are used, these words that are used, waiting or serving while waiting. Okay, if I actually believed the sun might break through the clouds at any moment to get me, I think that that would be a source of motivation for how I serve him today. So to be a church with a resounding testimony, we must fully expect Christ to come back at any moment. This is vital Christian living. And so I ask you, is it your persistent expectation that the Lord might return soon? My PhD, former PhD advisor, Brian Rossner, uh, made a great statement about this once that really stuck into me. I heard him lecturing a group of believers. And he asked a question, he made a statement. And I want to reiterate that to you now. He's, he asked the question, are you living in light of your future? Then he said this, one sentence, very powerful. He said, we ought to live in such a way that the future squashes our present. The future squashes our present. That is, we must allow the possibility of the Lord's sudden return to change the nature of our days and our weeks here on this planet. These are the marks of a church with a powerful testimony. 
This is vital Christian living. Turn, serve, while waiting. So may God enable people to speak this way of us, to speak this way of our conversion and our Christianity as a church from whom God's word and our faith is blasting out to the regions around us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word. I thank you for the encouraging nature uh, that it has for us. Thank you for how it edifies us. I pray, Lord, that first that I would be addressing people who've been converted, that everyone under the sound of my voice would say, I do not serve other lords or gods, not even my own ideas and values. I serve the living and true God of heaven. Might they recognize and know that the only way salvation is possible is through this father who sent his son to save them. So, Father, if there's someone here today who's never been converted, who's never turned from their sin and believed in Jesus, submitting themselves to the Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help them today. I pray that this would be the time for them when they would say, I'm giving it all up. All those things I hold to, my own philosophical system, my own values, I've heard this gospel before, I've heard this preacher describe this before, but today I am turning from these things to trust in God and his son that he sent for us. And Father, for those people who are here today who have been converted, I pray that two words would describe them, serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. I pray, Lord, that that testimony of a church where individual believers gather together and then corporately attempt to serve you while waiting for your son to come would be true of us. Lord, help us not lose this sense of anticipation for seeing Christ. And I pray that it would encourage everyone in the room today to serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.